If you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're continuing talking about the reality of Emmanuel, um, living between the two advents of Jesus, essentially, is what we're talking about here. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed, indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I learned in, uh, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Emmanuel, you have entered our world and our circumstances. You have entered the rhythms of life that we experience, a hunger and thirst, fullness. Uh, the work and uh, the reality of being exhausted, but also the reality of being rested and ready. For you were fully human. Help us this morning as we push against limitations, as we uh, talk about some hard realities of our limitations. Give us a greater glimpse of your love and your faithfulness towards us in our finite but also sinful condition. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes I'm very uh, critical of the Internet, and for good reason. Uh, one of the things that it did this way in a positive sense was just kind of uh, remind me, I guess, uh, of something. Someone had mentioned about how difficult the Christmas season was for immigrants into our country. Uh, because they come here and they're sort of like, you know, parachute dropped in the middle of American culture, and here comes Christmas with all of the materialistic expectations that are placed upon people, and they feel like they've got to somehow join in with that if they're going to be fully American in their experience, but they don't have the financial resources, really, at that point in order to do that. And so that reminded me of the, the couple of years, the couple of Christmases that Amy and I spent uh, and I was underemployed and having that same similar sense of, of now we've got these two young children and we want to, to bless them and encourage them. We want to give them stuff because we love them. And yet there were the financial realities in which we existed that prevented us from being perhaps as generous as we wanted to be. Um, because, well, we're, we're not into um, going into debt for Christmas. So, <laughs> and neither should anyone uh, be going into debt for Christmas. But points to that common reality is that sometimes we cannot, on the one hand, we cannot fulfill the, the desires we have for generosity. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, sometimes we, we're kind of greedy too. As we think about this text, and we, as we think about what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, um, 
I want us to start with Jesus because that's really what holds all of this together and everything else I'm going to say. And so we're beginning at the end. What does Paul say about Emmanuel, this God who is with us? He starts, well, he ends with this profound statement, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if you're going to choose misunderstood texts in the Bible, uh, if we were to play Family Feud, this would be up there in the top five, most likely. Um, because this is an incredibly misunderstood and much abused text of Scripture. Uh, it has become sort of a Christianized, self-motivational verse for athletes, for students who are facing exams, perhaps, uh, for real go-getters like Khalil the Caterpillar we talked about from Jonah last week. Okay, you're a, I am a real go-getter. This is one of those verses that people sort of employ in that sense, and that's not really at all what Paul is talking about. The context of this statement really should set the boundaries for our expectations as we think about Jesus who strengthens me so I can do all things. It should should provide the, the boundaries for what we understand by those all things. Okay, we'll get to that in a little bit, but I want you to to recall or understand this reality that Paul is speaking about himself as one who is united to Christ Jesus, and because he is united to this Christ Jesus, in this vital living union, Jesus gives him strength, gives him power, or as the text is, empowers him. That word for power there, of course, is the one that we get dynamite from. But uh, let's not think that Jesus blows you up or gives you uh, the power to blow things up. He doesn't turn you into some sort of explosive device. Paul here is recognizing the reality of his own weakness. He's he's, uh, expressing something of his own inability to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, and he's looking to Jesus Christ by faith to receive the power to do what he believes he must do. And one of the ways we can think of that is sort of the, the father who kind of is draped over their son or their daughter helping them to do something. The the child lacks the strength needed to open the jar, and instead of just taking the jar and opening it, but sometimes some parents will reach over and assist their child, providing the real strength that is necessary to accomplish the task at hand. And that's sort of what we have going on in this text. And we see it in a similar fashion. We read about it from 2 Corinthians already, but I want to remind you that he says that for the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness. Paul wasn't cursing his weakness like we tend to do. He was content with insults. He was content with hardships and persecutions, calamities. I mean, who of us, when we're in the midst of a calamity, is like, I'm content. I've been in the wreckage of hurricanes, and I never thought, I'm content. I'm like, when is the AC back on? Because I was in a really hot place. But Paul has this profound sense that for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
He has a very upside-down way of looking at things precisely because of this vital union that he has with Jesus Christ that changes how he sees everything. And I want to remind you that we are joined to the very same Jesus. It's not like Paul had a special Jesus and you have this cut-rate Jesus. But we are united to the same one who does the same things for us. He also can be the Jesus that we look to for strength when we are weak. When we're experiencing a body that doesn't function like we, we know it should fun- function. When we're ravaged by migraines or, or never-ending exhaustion or a limb that won't work like we want it to work. We have that same Jesus. We're united to that same Jesus. Korean pastor um, Nam Joon Kim mentions, uh, he mentions Emmanuel, and he says, in this Emmanuel thing, uh, God himself takes responsibility for the lives of his people. He always gives us exactly what we need in order to live a loving life for his glory. And as I I kind of explain this later on or or, or expand on some of this later on, I want you to keep that phrase in mind because I'm going to speak of living faithfully in our circumstances. And what I have in mind is just that, living a loving life for his glory. Continuing to love because the one whom we serve is love. God is love. And so faithfulness, that as I'm mentioning, is going to be that continuing to love God and other people in the midst of our circumstances, instead of using our circumstances as an excuse not to love God or his people. So that, that's kind of where I'm going with this. And so the, the first thing that I want us to, to really get is that Christ came near to strengthen us. That is one of the great blessings of Jesus as Emmanuel. He came near to strengthen us so we can do these all things that Paul has in mind here in this text. So how does how is this strength revealed in the circumstances of Paul and the Philippians? Okay, now we get to the first part of this text. Back, We're jumping back up to verse 10. Okay, Paul expresses a cause for rejoicing greatly. And it's funny because that word rejoicing in and of itself can mean to rejoice greatly. And so Paul then sticks this modifier uh, next to it. He he throws the the adverb in there, um, mega. Paul is mega rejoicing. Okay? Really, really, really rejoicing. Uh, I don't usually watch commercials. I hit my fast forward button. But there's, there's one that I, I sort of like, and it's the interstate battery commercial. I know, it's a strange commercial to like, isn't it? Um, but there's, all of these people are, it's like a slow motion shot of an office. And you have all these people, and they're like dancing and jumping up and down and all of this stuff. Because they won the lottery. Their office has won the lottery, and everyone is just thrilled that they get to split the lottery, except the one guy who's in his chair. Because his battery didn't start that day that they bought the ticket. So he doesn't have a share. But everyone else is rejoicing. 
And so I'm caught, I'm caught up, so to speak, in, in all of the jumping and the shouting and all of the, that's mega rejoicing. Now, I don't know if that's exactly how Paul was in the midst of his uh, prison cell or the house arrest that he was under, but certainly he wanted to on the inside. And I, part of what this reminds me of, or, or, or we should understand from this, I think, is that we all have different emotional bandwidths. Okay? You're not maybe the person who's going to jump up and down with something exciting. And that's okay. Okay? How you express joy will differ from person to person. Okay? Uh, even as you see that commercial, there, some people are dancing, some are just jumping, and some people are like, they're, they're expressing it differently. There's no one way to express joy. And some people are very quiet about how they express joy. And that's okay, too. Some people have um, a wider emotional bandwidth than other people. And so their joys are felt more forcefully than other people experience their joys. And so remember that. I guess, um, so that you're kind to one another in the way that other people process their joys and their sorrows. And we'll get more to that in January. So there's a little preview of uh, January. All right. Paul's in prison. Okay. He's under arrest. There's Roman centurions there. And yet Paul has this cause for rejoicing. And the cause for his rejoicing, he claims, is that, you know, remember, there's other, joy, there's other rejoicing that Paul does in chapter 1. But here he mentions specifically, you have revived your concern for me. He's rejoicing in a profound way, mega rejoicing, uh, that the Philippians had sent Paul a gift to sustain, to sustain him while he was waiting for his trial. Now remember, he can't leave. Uh, there's no work release. Uh, and of course, he was expected to provide for his own needs. It was not, you know, uh, three hots in a cot. And so, Paul was experiencing deprivation, and here comes this gift from the Philippians, and so he is able to buy some of the necessities he needs for his imprisonment because he was helpless to provide for himself. Now, he uses a word that is used in horticulture, this idea of being revived, to sprout up, to bloom, to, to kind of flourish again. Uh, yesterday I spent part of my day vacuuming leaves in my yard because we have three trees that drop their leaves in the winter. And winter has, winter has come to Tucson, okay? And doesn't mean my trees are dead. Doesn't mean that they're, you know, they've ceased to exist. It just means that they're taking a rest or they're taking a break. And uh, I imagine that in eight weeks or less uh, I will have leaves again sprouting all over my tree, Right? That's the idea. That, that for a time, they were unable to minister to him in this way. They were, they were unable to express their concern, but it doesn't mean that they were unconcerned about Paul. Okay? They didn't lack concern, but Paul mentions that they had no opportunity uh, to give to him. And we're not sure exactly what that means. 
Um, it could be simply due to the fact of, remember, this is the ancient world. Um, you can't send a telegram through Western Union. You can't send money uh, through Western Union. Uh, there's no bank that you can do an electronic transfer, and Paul has been all over the ancient world and had gone through, you know, they don't know where he is at any given point in time. And, you know, when he shipwrecked on Cyprus, it's not like they're sending him money. And so, or even knowing that he shipwrecked on Cyprus. And so now they know where he is, and he's going to be there a while, and so their, their inner concern or, or opportunity has arisen for them to express their concern for him and to him. This is similar to what Paul says in Galatians 6. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Uh, we don't always have opportunities, uh, but when we do, we should take advantage of those particular opportunities. I'm reminded this morning of uh, one, one of those instances I had years and years ago. It was after a worship service uh, way back in New Hampshire, and um, I was nobody. I'm just sitting there. Kind of, I think I was waiting to talk to a friend or something, and I overheard a conversation between people I didn't know. This was a larger congregation, and one of them was talking about the financial constraints that they were experiencing because they were between jobs. So now I have an opportunity. Do I take advantage of this opportunity? Uh, I was able to identify who it was from someone else, and so uh, girlfriend number three and I ended up uh, buying a bunch of basic food items, uh, you know, finding their address in the directory and showing up on their doorstep uninvited saying, I heard you, here's some stuff. It was just a simple thing. It wasn't elaborate. It didn't take a government program uh, or a church program. Uh, all it took was, wow, I have an opportunity to care for someone who needs some help right now um, and did that. We see that the Macedonian church of which... The Philippian church was a part. Okay? The larger region they lived in was Macedonia. We, we see in 2 Corinthians 8 that they gave to the poor that were in Jerusalem, but Paul points out to the Corinthians that they did this despite the fact that they themselves were experiencing hardship. They weren't giving out of their largesse. They were giving out of their poverty, out of their own hardship, but they loved the Jerusalem church enough that they gave anyway, even though it hurt. And how is it that they were able to do that? This, gener this generosity comes from Emmanuel. This God with us, who, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians impoverished himself, and you know he was rich but made himself poor, he impoverished himself in order to enrich us spiritually. And so this, the same Jesus works to strengthen his people to do a similar thing, to, to enable them to be generous when they have opportunities to be generous. It's similar to what Paul says in Philippians 2.13, God who works in you to will and work for his good pleasure, and sometimes his good pleasure is that giving, that generosity to other people who are in need. 
And so Jesus is the righteous one, as we see uh, in Timothy. And this righteous one is righteous in part, as we see from the Proverbs. Okay, Tim Keller talks a lot about this, but he gets it from Dr. Bruce Waltke. Righteous people disadvantage themselves so that they can advantage others. That sounds just like 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Jesus, who was rich, made himself poor, disadvantaged himself so that he could advantage others or make them rich. And this Jesus, when we're united to him, does the same in us. So Jesus strengthens us to share as opportunities permit. So that's one of the ways in which we see um, the reality of Christ with us, or God with us, taking place, Him strengthening us in all things. But there's another kind of question that emerges that some people who are, I think, cynical uh, have. Uh, Was Paul looking for more money? Was he like some of the pastors we have today who are trying to buy private jets? Or the guy who just recently gave his wife an anniversary Lamborghini for $200,000. I'm sure my wife would prefer a Ferrari as to the Lamborghini. <laughs> Sorry, honey, I know our anniversary is coming up later this month, but there's no Ferrari. <laughs> there's no Lamborghini. There's not even a Honda. <laughs> but it's Paul... Looking for another handout, really, is, is kind of how some people want to interpret this. And Paul was actually concerned about that, and he sort of addresses that in how he talks about this. He says, not that I'm speaking out of need, not that I'm speaking out of want, that I'm speaking out of, out of uh, deprivation and desperation. I'm not begging you for more money than exp- and expressing my gratitude to you. You see, Paul, I think, suffers from something that a lot of pastors do. Paul... was embarrassed, I think, perhaps, um, to express his needs. And a lot of pastors can feel this embarrassment of expressing their needs. And sometimes it's because people don't want to hear your needs. <laughs> sometimes people feel like you're putting pressure on them, uh, that you're putting them out somehow. And, and, and so what can often happen is a rather unhealthy situation where uh, people aren't caring for one another because no one is sharing where they need help. Okay, uh, so Paul is gently expressing his need, but without the strings of, and you better come through for me, if that distinction makes sense. Okay, Just because someone says they're having a hard time financially doesn't mean that they're asking you to help them. Okay, But sometimes we can be afraid of that. We can go, oh no, what is this person asking of me? When's it coming? Because we've had people do that. But that doesn't mean everyone who talks about what's really going on in their life is doing that. Okay. What Paul says is that he has learned in whatever situations to be content. And so Paul is not writing them and being grateful because he's still desperate or desperate again, Paul is, is, is telling them, I'm content with what I have. I'll take your gift, but 
I'm still content. Despite his situation of want, because I mean, the, I'm sure the Philippian church didn't, you know, drop a hundred thousand dollars on him. You know, Paul is going to continue to be in want. Paul continues to be content, and that's the irony of this text, because that word content really has the idea of, uh, or was used in, in among the Greeks to talk about. Um, self-sufficiency, okay? And part of that is that the Stoics, the, some of the philosophers of Paul's day, they looked inside themselves for contentment, and so it was largely about killing desire. Contentment for them was about killing desire. And it was focused on their self-sufficiency. But Paul was not simply killing desire. Paul was not looking inward for contentment, Paul, based on the last verse of this, was looking to Christ. He was looking outside of himself. He was looking to Jesus to strengthen him so that he could live in this situation of want and deprivation that maybe he didn't necessarily want to be in, but he was content to be in. Jeremiah Burroughs, one of the great Puritans, noted that contentment is freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal. So it's, it's, it's trusting that what God has given you, while it may not be enough for all of your wants, is sufficient for what he knows you need. Paul is trusting Jesus to provide what he truly needed instead of grasping for more, more, more. In other words, the answer to his discontentment was not simply getting more stuff. The answer to his discontentment was resting in Jesus. Now, the opportunity may come to get more stuff, but that's not really going to produce contentment because contentment is a heart issue, not a pocketbook issue. Okay? Trusting in God's providence, which we talk about a fair amount here, means that you are where you are because he wants you where you are at that moment. And so if you are in a position of want, in part, it is because of where he wants, that's where he wants you for a reason, whether it's to learn the, um, the consequences of your actions or whether it's just he wants you to learn to trust more. That's a, those are different questions. But you are where you are because he wants you there. Proverbs, for instance, notes, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Wise words. That's part of what Paul's getting at. Most societies have limited social mobility. In England, they talk about it in terms of class structure. That was one of the interesting things about Downton Abbey, for those who watched it. Um, 
because a lot of that was breaking down in that, that show. A lot of the class structure was starting to fall apart and people were really having to, to think of a new way of looking at their culture and society. The caste system in India is another expression of, of this. And there was, in, was almost no mobility within a caste system. And so in a lot of cultures, it's very hard to get ahead. You're kind of stuck where you are. Okay? So sometimes... You just have to be, you don't have the mobility, the ability to change positions and make more money like you do here in America in the modern times. But back to then, many Christians then experienced poverty in part because of the trade guilds. Because every trade guild, as you see in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, they have their own God, and in order to be part of that trade guild, which apart from being part of that trade guild, you can't conduct that trade, you have to pay allegiance, you have to pay homage to the god of that trade guild. And so some people lost their jobs because, or their ability to earn money because they refused to worship the trade gods. We see from Hebrews that some people had their property confiscated as well. So something similar to what we're seeing in China right now. We have Job who experiences um, catastrophe and he notes uh, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away and instead of being angry with this, he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He recognized it was God's hand at work and while he was not happy with how God worked, he blessed the God that he loved and who loved him more. We see Jesus speaking in Luke 9 about the fact that there are people who want to follow him, and he warns them, you know, foxes have their holes, birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Jesus we follow is one who knew poverty. Trying to work hard, in other words, will not work to fix your discontentment. We have to rely on Jesus to strengthen us to live faithfully. And remember what I said about love there. Deprivation or want can, can extend not just to um, financial problems, but it, as I alluded to earlier, it can extend to health issues uh, that plague people. It, it, can, it can extend to relational problems where you feel deprived of family or you feel deprived of uh, friendship and love and therefore feel incredibly alone and isolated in this world. You can be deprived of work or work that you enjoy and have to feel the tedium of a job you can't stand but you can't quit. Jesus can strengthen you in all of those situations. And so Jesus strengthens us to live in times of poverty. Are we to think that money solves all our problems by producing contentment? And I've already said no to that, but I'm going to say no even more um, because Paul also learned contentment in both being brought low and abounding in plenty and in hunger. Paul probably had money once. Paul was a Pharisee. 
And Pharisees were uh, at least middle class, but we know that his parents sent him to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. I imagine, that's, that's sort of like sending your kid to Harvard without a scholarship, right? Because I doubt there was the local synagogue scholarship that you could get, so you could go to Jerusalem and hang out with Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis of the time. So Paul's family likely had money. But now Paul doesn't. We don't know what happened. It's possible that he was disowned after his conversion. It's possible that he used it in the in, in his missionary endeavors in the past. We don't know. But what we sort of do know is that he was not like uh, Francis of Assisi, who... Um, part of his conversion gave away his dad's stuff (laughs) and embraced lady poverty. Um, Giving away everything and embracing poverty is not how you learn contentment either. Just as it's not getting stuff, contentment's not about getting rid of stuff. Okay? Today's prosperity, however, does not rule out tomorrow's poverty, just like today's poverty does not rule out tomorrow's prosperity. We again are brought back to that place of trusting in God's providence that we are where we are today, and it's okay. And tomorrow he will continue to be at work, and we may find ourselves in a very different place, and it's because he has brought us there. Whether it's Israel in the wilderness or Israel in the promised land. And that's what's significant about this. As Israel is getting ready to enter the promised land, in Deuteronomy 8, God reminds them of how he sustained them within the wilderness and how their shoes didn't wear out and their clothes didn't wear out and they had food every day. And now they're going into a different place where their shoes can wear out and where their clothes will wear out. And God's not going to provide manna. But you know what? He has provided all of these homes and things that they're now moving into and all of these fields that exist already without them having planted them. And he says the danger. Don't eat and be satisfied and forget me. That's the temptation of prosperity. And we see from Hosea 13 that that is the exact thing that happened to them. They ate, they were satisfied, and they forgot their God. And so while the danger of of poverty is that you steal, as we read from Proverbs, the danger of prosperity is that you forget who you belong to, whose you are, and how you got all that you have. And so moving from want to abundance is simply a change of our circumstance. It's not necessarily a change of heart. John Piper's words in uh, Future Grace, I think, are pertinent to this. The fight of faith is the fight to keep your heart contented in Christ, to really believe and to keep on believing that he will meet every need and satisfy every longing. Now, that's an important word, longing. Not everything you want, but the longings are really about what that represents. Um, the wholeness, the shalom that we really want. Um, and the lack of our shalom, because sometimes we, we, we might mistake 
if only I have X, Y, or Z, then I'll be, I'll be whole. And, and, and God doesn't necessarily agree with your assessment of what you need to be whole. But he's got to make you whole. On that we can rely. We need Jesus not only to strengthen us in poverty, but we need Jesus to strengthen us to live faithfully when we experience prosperity, to continue to love people in the midst of prosperity. In prosperity, we need Jesus to move move us from kind of greed to generosity, to, to, to maintain that idea of sacrificial giving as opposed to uh, simply thinking, um, well, I give more than I used to give. Well, back then it was it hurt to give, and now maybe it doesn't. Maybe some people need to give more. That's a wisdom issue. Okay. Um, in prosperity, we need Jesus to help us. Not to spoil our kids with over-generosity. Enabling them to not learn about hard work and the consequences of it. So there's another danger that presents itself. That's what happens to a lot of people who have nothing and then get lots of stuff. They then want to save their kids from the hard living and don't prepare them to live with Hard work, diligence, perseverance, they spoil their children. And we want to avoid that as well. And only Jesus can help us uh, avoid these, these dangers on both sides of, of this road that we're called to kind of walk along. And, and so we see that Jesus strengthens us to live in times of prosperity so that we're loving people well in our prosperity. So Christmas, you know... Um, it's not about how much you give, and it certainly isn't about how much you get. Christmas, in many ways, reveals our struggle with contentment as we grapple with greed and generosity in our own hearts, if we're honest. Christmas reveals our need for Jesus, who drew near to strengthen us to live these lives of love regardless of our financial situation, or any situation, for that matter. Christmas grounds us in God's gift of Emmanuel, that he is with us so that we can be strengthened and satisfied in God alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift we needed, which isn't necessarily the gift we asked for. But we thank you that you're wiser than we are. We thank you that you're kinder than we are. You're more good than we are, more holy, more righteous, more everything. And we thank you that you answer our prayers not according to our limited perspective, but in accordance with your unlimited perspective and resources. And so while 
while we tend to think about money and stuff, you gave us your son who joined us in this mess that we've made to rescue us from this mess that we have made. And so help us to trust him to strengthen us to live faithfully in whatever dimensions that takes this week, this month, this next year, the next decade, until you bring us home. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.